Good evening and welcome to another Worship with a Templar. Tonight we're going to talk about what is in a name. God does have a name. He does. God has a name. Let's, let's talk about the big idea first, though. Uh, the big idea is in John's Gospel. Jesus made seven declarations, all beginning with the words, I am. This is in the same declaration that God made in the Old Testament as well. Together, these statements offer a multifaceted uh, view of Jesus and in the ways he impacts everyday life, our struggles, fears, and questions, as well as our hopes and dreams. Um, before we get started on this, let's, let's say a little bit of a prayer. Father, we want you to see you. We want to see you better and, and better with each passing day. And, and we have come to believe that we see you most clearly by looking at Jesus, the one who showed us exactly what you are like. Open our eyes to see the glimpse of truth you have for us this day. And if you look at uh, in today's Ash Wednesday as well as Valentine's Day, happy Valentine's Day, and, and it's Ash Wednesday as well, and that ashes go on the forehead is to remind us uh, once we were dust and dust we shall return. But Let's get on with the subject matter. Let's look at uh, Exodus chapter 3, uh, verse 14. Uh, Moses was talking to God and, and supposed to, if you look at verse 13, Moses said to God, so, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me uh, to you. And, and they asked me, uh, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? He's asking. And, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Amazing. You know, it's just, everything is just so great. So today we're going to embark on a nine-week journey together through the Gospel of John and into a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and what that means for us. What's in a name? It's a comprehensive look uh, to look at I am statements of Christ in the New Testament, which, like most things, traces its roots back to the Old Testament. Um, in Greek, the language of the New Testament, I am, is ego, in, imi. And that's the way each of the seven statements begin in John's Gospel. But as I mentioned, the roots of the phrase go back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, where God introduces himself to Moses with the expression, I am who I am. It's, a, it's rendered in Hebrew. It almost sounds like Popeye, Popeye the sailor man. I am what I am. I am who I am. It's rendered in Hebrew, like I said, which is has no vowels in its alphabet, as uh, Y-H-W-H, usually pronounced Yahweh. Later in Israel, the name Yahweh was considered too holy to even pronounce. So God was simply referred to as the name in Hebrew, Hashem. 
Some rabbis taught that that name could not be pronounced, only Bree. In keeping in the tradition, English translations of the Bible usually rendered Yahweh as the Lord in, in all caps. Uh, the name also became a way to connect with God personally. Yeah, yeah. God has a name, and it's used throughout Israel's history to convey that God always was, always is, and always will be. But the name is just not about God's stoicism. It's, it's his isness sitting silently and passively like a giant cosmic Buddha statue impervious to what's uh, happening around him. I am. Also, Canote's uh, action as the first clause, the one for whom there is no prior cause, the one who makes things happen according to our deepest needs. Uh, this becomes clear in the story of Moses in, encountered and at the burning bush, which is where the journey begins today. Moses' background, uh, Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, plus more information from chapter 1, probably best told rather than read. All right. He was born in Egypt. When it was unhealthy to be a Jewish boy, there were, this was more than 400 years after Joseph had, had brought his extended family to Egypt during the Great Famine. For, and for a while, they prospered, but eventually uh, were enslaved by a pharaoh who did not remember Joseph. They continued to multiply in numbers that made pharaoh nervous, so he gave the order of all male babies born in Hebrew and the Hebrews uh, to be thrown into the Nile and drowned. After a miraculous turn of events, um, he grows up in a, in a palace as the grandson of Pharaoh himself. You know, he was found floating down the river, a basket. But as a young man, he had an identity crisis, and he remembered who he really was. In Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verses 24-25, by faith, Moses when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy a fleeting pleasures of sin. He had good intentions, though. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. Um, one day he kills an Egyptian for mistreating one of his people, the Hebrew slaves. His intentions were good, but he tried to accomplish God's purposes in his own power. Afterwards, even his own people didn't trust him. Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Chapter 2, verse 14. So God had to humble Moses to show him the limitations, his limitations, the, the complete inadequacy, uh, inadequacy of his own strength and ability. So he sent him to the backside of the desert to tend sheep for 40 years. While being there, he has a life-changing encounter with God's presence in a burning bush. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. That tells the story about that. Um, chapter 3, verse 11. Let's fast forward a little bit. Who am I? Have you ever used that one? Who am I? I think when you were growing up, you probably said, who am I? What am I doing? And, and today, you probably say, who am I, really? 
it's a great it's great because it gets out of the assignment but uh, you still you still sound humble interestingly god never answers that question he just says i will be with you an example uh, this is not about you it's about me it doesn't matter who you are it only matters who i am now think about that let that sink in for a minute and uh, and yeah, just just thinking about it. The the second objection. Now that was Moses' objection. Now, the second objection is, who are you? Chapter three, verses uh, thirteen through fifteen. Moses asked God, "What is your name?" If the people ask me which God I've been speaking to, what shall I tell them? The descendants of Abraham living in Egypt had only one distant memory of God of their forefathers, of God of their forefathers. After 400 years, they probably had adopted many of the uh, worship practices of, the, of their Egyptian neighbors. They needed to be reintroduced to Elam, the God Most High. So when Moses asks for God's name, God answers, I am who I am. In Hebrew, it comes out Yahweh, which is in a form of a, the a verb to be. Tell them, I am sent you. Well, okay, but what kind of name is that? Actually, it reveals four very important things about God. First, Yahweh is the only one of his kind. Uh, we use names to distinguish someone from others of their kind, but there are no other gods but God alone. There isn't anyone like I am. Secondly, Yahweh's existence has no extension in time. God is eternal and lives outside of time in the eternal now. There has never been a uh, time when God did not exist, and there will never come a time when God ceases to exist. God always is. Scripture say and says there is a coming a time when time shall be no more. But God will continue to be. Everything else in the universe has limits, including time itself, but not God. God is the first cause, the unmoved mover, the great I am. Third, Yahweh is always the same. God is the same yesterday, today, forever. As thou hast been, thou shalt be greatness, or great is thy faithfulness. Fourth thing, Yahweh is, is the one with the power to act on the people's behalf. He is the one who makes things happen according to our greatest needs. So Jesus uses the expression, I am. I am would have been an unmistakable signal to his, his hearers. They knew the ancient significance of the words, even in Greek, ego imi. Jesus um, was explicitly identifying himself with God and bearing God's presence on the earth. The theological term is incarnation, uh, enfleshment. But we need to, to back up even further to fully grasp what that means. Let's, let's look at a, a diagram of an hourglass. All right, let's take a look at, a, at an hourglass. Just imagine what an hourglass looks like. You know, it's kind of 
high on the bottom, thin in the middle, and then wide on the bottom, <clears throat> or on the top and then on the bottom. The, the diagram is an attempt um, to show, just think about it, to show the big picture of our growing, unfolding understanding of God in various forms God has taken to reveal his mystery to us. <clears throat> At the top of the hourglass are ideas of God too big for the human mind to grasp. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, the triune God, the pre-existent Christ, the Logos spoken of by John at the beginning of this gospel, we start with the Trinity, with God as love and relationship. Then creation happens um, through, you know, through an, an pre-existent Christ, the second person in the Trinity. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him were created all things in heaven and on earth. Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 15 through 16. This grew into the notion of the eternal wisdom of God that was eventually going to leap down from heaven into our human and time-limited realm. This wisdom is personified in the Proverbs as a woman, Sophia. Sophia. And in this is a beautiful, compassionate, abstraction, divine reality, but not yet personal and relatable. Proverbs um, chapter 3, verse 13 through 18. Blessed are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding, for she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can, can compare with her. Long life in her right hand, in her left hand are the riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. She is the tree of life to those who take hold of her. Those who hold her fast will be blessed. Next, in the book of Daniel, the pre-existent Christ uh, moves towards greater personification with the idea of the Son of Man. This is the phrase Jesus most frequently used to identify himself and is likely based on a verse from Daniel's prophecy. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one uh, like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority glory, and sovereign power. All nations and the peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 through 14. The Son of Man is uh, archaleptical proto prototypical figure of a corporate personality, one who sums up the whole, and Jesus fully embodies this identity in himself. He is in uh, microism and macroism. It's only why Jesus could say before Abraham was, that's right, I am. John chapter 8, verses uh, 58. I am. So, We'll do more on that next week. So the the great mystery at the top of the funnel 
is gradually reduced to a single human being. Jesus comes forth from the Father and, and into the world and says, that is what God is doing. Look at me. I am what God is saying and doing. And I'm the whole process from beginning to end. Jesus reveals the whole pattern of creation and human history in condensed form. Because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we know ahead of time that the final chapter is always resurrection. Even though so much of life is filled with suffering, disappointment, disillusionment, absurdity, and death, God will turn all of our crucifixions into resurrections. Look at it in Jesus. Believe it in Jesus. Love it in Jesus. And let it, let it take shape in our own soul, in your own soul. This is the glorious good news that we have to share with the world. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, the hourglass shape starts expanding again. Jesus has said, except a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. John chapter 12, uh, verse 24. Paul actually refers to Jesus as a second Adam, uh, the progenitor of the whole new race of people on earth. First uh, Corinthians uh, chapter 15. Next, the diagram of the, is the ascension as it holds Acts uh, chapter 1. Verses 9 through 11. Angels appear next to the disciple as they gaze after the rising figure and ask, Why are you standing here, staring up into heaven? Most of the historic Christianity has been doing just that ever since, straining to find a historical Jesus up there. Where did he go? We've been obsessed with this question because apparently we still think the universe is divided into separate levels, heaven and earth. But it is one universe, and everything within it uh, has been transformed by the glory of God. The whole point of the incarnation and resurrection is that Christ is here and always was. But now we have a story that allows us to imagine it just might be true. Jesus didn't go anywhere, but he was transformed into a universal omnipresent body of Christ. In the first sermon of the day of the Pentecost, Peter told the crowd, God has made him both Lord and Christ. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Jesus told his disciples before his death, it is, it is good for you that I go away, unless I go away. The Comforter uh, will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. John chapter 16, verse 7. I like to ask people who are eagerly waiting the second coming of Christ. What do you think he is now? The final book of the Bible promises a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Not an escape from earth, but we have been focused on going to heaven instead of living on earth as Jesus did, which makes heaven and earth one. Right? It is heaven all the way to heaven. What you choose now is exactly what you choose forever. God will not disappoint you. And then Paul's wonderful declaration in, in chapter 2, verse 9 in, in uh, Philippians, um, 
Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name Hashem. That is above every name. Also in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, and he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he proposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and in earth together under one head, even Christ. So, the conclusion. Next week we'll be we'll do another brief introduction, this time to John's gospel itself. Then over the following seven weeks, which include Easter, we'll we'll look at even uh, of each of the seven I am statements. That's where the journey is taking us. For now, spend some time this week contemplating the hourglass shape of God's work in the universe. Where are you and I in that hourglass? Does that change the way we live in the here and now? It's mind-blowing and life-changing at the same time. The great mystery of the universe gradually became a single point in time, incarnation. Then the life of the ages began expanding outward again to include you and me, and eventually all creation. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's, let's pray about this for next week. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for giving these moments of this time. Lord, thank you for, for taking care of us and, and dying for our sins and, and believing in us. Lord, we thank you so much. Amen. Now, I also want to move on to, I want, I want to write, read one more thing to you, Psalms. I gotta get to my book of Psalms real quick here. Psalms fifty one. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgression, wash away all my inequity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was a sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and... I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my inequity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will reach Teach transgressors your ways, so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, who are my God and my Savior. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in the sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, 
a broken and contrite heart, you, God, will not despise. May it please you and prosper Zion to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. And that's, there's a lot of things there. And and it's really good to, to sing that or talk about that during uh, Ash Wednesday as today. I wanted to uh, thank you for joining me here. I know this was a short session. And uh, God bless you. And check me in next week, probably next Wednesday, um, for part two of our nine-week session. Thank you so much for joining.